Old Testament passage is Nehemiah 13. We are closing the book today. We have a long chapter, so listen carefully. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense." I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I've made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoda, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we ask that you will uphold us by your mercy, that you will send forth your spirit, and that you'll send out your light and your truth, that you would lead us to yourself this morning, that we will hear you speak, and that you will apply these things to us, direct us and challenge us, comfort us and console us in all the ways that you do through your son, Jesus Christ. Speak, Lord for your servants are listening. Amen. We are in the final week of Nehemiah. We've covered these 13 chapters. And in this final chapter, we stumble onto something perhaps unexpected. Across the first six chapters, we've seen that expectations rise as Nehemiah comes to the city of Jerusalem. He was a cupbearer to the Persian emperor who was installed in Babylon. He comes to the city, and he overcomes opposition. He galvanizes the people, reconstructs the wall, and he does all this in 52 days. This is the, these are the events of the first six chapters. But then the excitement doesn't end. It, exa- it actually accelerates that from chapter 6 on, there is then a spiritual renewal and reformation that breaks out in the city. That under Nehemiah and the other priests, particularly Ezra, that a reform begins to take place. The people are confronted in their reading of the law of God as they gather to do so on several different occasions. And then they confess their sins. They receive the comforts of the gospel. And then in chapter 10, we saw last week, they recommit themselves to endeavor after obedience to follow after God. This is chapter 10. Momentum continues to build. And then we arrive in the final chapter of the book, though, and we see something rather anticlimactic, a face plant that takes place. And you have to ask the question, why is it here? And what actually happened? In verse 6, we learn what happened is that Nehemiah returned to the Persian king, and while he was away, there was a spiritual decline. The people regressed 
into certain behaviors. And they reverted to those former patterns that had occupied their lives. And so all the success fizzled out into mediocrity when Nehemiah shows back up into the city and makes his observations. And the essential question for us this morning is why does God preserve this piece of history for us? Why does he preserve the face plant? Why does he preserve all of this failure that took place on the backside of all the great reforms? What does God precisely want us to learn from chapter 13? And across these 31 verses, what God would direct us to learn is that we are confronted by the vulnerability of the church. This is exactly what he wants us to see and appreciate, that the church, no matter its reform, no matter its renewal, always lives in this incredibly vulnerable space where we can make incredible progress, but we're never more than a hair's breadth from regressing, from stepping backwards, from returning to our former vices, that this is something of the situation in which we always live. When Nehemiah returned to the city in chapter 13, we see that he witnesses four major problems. There was the matter of foreign influence with the man Tobiah. There was the issue of intermarriage. There was the lack of financial stewardship. The people were not tithing. The Levites were working the fields. And then there was also Sabbath breaking. Of course, these are not new issues in the book of Nehemiah. We've covered these over the last several weeks. That these were the matters that were actually reformed and the people committed to. But yet, once Nehemiah was off the scene, the people simply regressed and went back to their ways. There had been extensive attention given to these things, but now it had been forsaken. And so, despite all the grace that God had poured out in that Reformation, despite the unity that the people enjoyed as they gave all of their common effort to building the wall and overcoming the opposition, despite all the gains, despite their vows, despite all the success that they had experienced, the people turned. This is the vulnerability of the church. It's humbling. And it's why chapter 13 sits in front of us today. There is such weakness among us that we can make progress only to then regress later on. 1674, Jodocus van Lodenstein. I'm confident I butchered that first name. It's the month of difficult first names for us here at Christ Church. Lodenstein was a Dutch pastor, though. He was ministering amongst the Dutch Reformed churches in the latter part of the 1600s. He was part of the Protestant Reformation, the heritage that we occupy today. But it was 100 years on from the Reformation. And in writing a short devotional book, he coined a famous phrase. He had no clue that that phrase would have its longevity. But he writes this, that the church reformed is always reforming. He saw the need to write those words because he noted that the church, 100 years after the Reformation, was beginning to grow cold in its love for Jesus. 
And so he says that the church reform, that is the church that lives in this great tradition of of the Protestant Reformation, will always be reforming. That is not necessarily that its doctrines are changing. That's not what he's trying to say. But rather that the church will always be coming under the reforming and renewing influence of the gospel. That the church will be strangely warmed by the preaching of Jesus Christ. That the church will not lose its first love. That that's the true nature of a reformed church. He understood that the church must constantly be reformed and renewed in the grace of God or it will decline. He appreciated the vulnerability of it. And this is, of course, what we see happening in Nehemiah 13. The people lost their first love. They lost the first love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what exactly did that look like? What shape did it take? And in chapter 13, we see four things that were unfolding as their love grew cold for Jesus. In the first, in verses 4 through 9, we see that there is a retreat into false securities. This is where we have the strange opponent named Tobiah, who has been throughout these 13 chapters present. Tobiah was the governor of Ammon, that is to the east of Judah. But he was intermarried into Jewish families and had considerable influence. We've seen this influence pop up through the chapters of Nehemiah. But it's important to consider how intermarriages often worked in the ancient world. Because you see, as the governor of Ammon, he was a powerful man. And so there were oftentimes marriages that took place to secure political alliances. And when a daughter was offered to a powerful governor, he would then swear to provide protection and defense and refuge for that city against any who came against it. Nehemiah had run Tobiah out. But Tobiah, in Nehemiah's absence, found himself once again in control and in influence in the city of Jerusalem. He was given the unthinkable. He was given a chamber in the temple itself, which was not supposed to be. And you see what has happened? Nehemiah had cleansed Israel of this foreign alliance, much like what Solomon had done. Solomon had intermarried in order to secure political alliances when Solomon was to trust that God was his defender, that God was his shield, that God was his refuge. And in Nehemiah's absence, the people had declined. And they were returning to these former securities, places in which they found their safety, places in which they found their refuge. They retreat to those, and they begin to invest themselves in them once again. And this is what happens in spiritual decline, is those things in which we are prone to find our security, our safety, and our wholeness, those things that are outside of Jesus, we begin to return to those things. We begin to invest ourselves in those things. We begin to think, if I have that, then everything will be okay, whatever it might be. But that is where spiritual decline begins for us, is retreating from the security that God offers and his promises through Jesus. And we begin to turn to those other things of the world that will always fail. But that's the first aspect that we see going on here of spiritual decline. Now the second, 
you'll find in verses 10 through 14. And we see that uh, financial stewardship is ignored. If you follow with me in verse 10, Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah had done extensive things to reform the tithing, the financial stewardship of the entire nation, and yet when he steps away and comes back, he realizes that the system has completely fallen apart. They failed to follow through with their commitments. They were not giving themselves to support the work and the purposes of God in the world. Now, when we speak about finances at Christ Church, I always remind you of a couple key principles. And the first of those is that as the pastor of this church, I never see numbers attached to names and never want to. In fact, I never handle money itself. Someone tried to hand me their tithe check just recently, and I said, nope, give that to Charlotte, please. It's the wonderful liberty the elders have given me is not to know anything or even be exposed to it where I would never see a name attached to a number. It's a great freedom. That said, as the pastor of Christ Church, I am also deeply invested in the finances of this church. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's because of one very simple principle that Jesus lays out in Matthew 6. That is that where our treasure is, where our money is, there our heart will be also. And friends, our spiritual health is always tied to our financial stewardship. Our finances reveal so much about us. And it's important as the pastor of a church not to shy away from things that are uncomfortable Because the biblical principle of tithing is simply there. It's commanded by God. We have no permission to change it, and we really have no permission to go against it. And so it's incumbent upon us to encourage it, to talk about the goodness of tithing and what it achieves and what God's goals are in it. And there's two things over the past few years that we've learned about Christ Church. We've done systematic studies, and those two things are this. First is that we are healthier than the average church. That's good. It's a good note to make. But the second thing that we've learned is there's also room for improvement. On average, as we look at each year, 50% of our households provide 90% of the church's income. Now, there's a couple of different ways to look at those percentages. You could say, well, Chuck, those 50% of those households may just make more money than the other 50%. It's very possible, but when you actually look at the numbers and begin to work through the spreadsheets that our accountant prints for us, you begin to see that, no, there's a sharp difference, actually, between that front 50% and that second 50% of our households, that there's a significant decline in the numbers, and there's a reason that why the back half, the back 50%, only adds up to 10% of the church's income. And friends, this points that we have room to grow that there is a need for us to listen to the command of God. When God tells us to offer 10% of all that he gives us, that there's a need to listen to that and to appreciate the goodness of that command. So often when I talk to people about tithing, it seems that the conversation goes like this. Well, a tithe is when 
I give God 10% of what I have. And it's immediately at that point that I know we're having the wrong conversation. Because you see, a tithe is not relinquishing or giving to God what but properly belong to you. But rather the philosophy of tithing that we have in the Bible, where we offer 10%, what is happening there is that we're recognizing that 100% of what we have, of all the increase, of all the food, of all the finances, of all the things that we've been supplied with, 100% of it is a gift. And it comes from God. It's freely given. And the 10% is not simply what we owe God. The 10% is being used symbolically to recognize that the entire 100% belongs to him. It gives thanks for all that has been given to us, and then it sanctifies the other 90% for our own use. That at the heart of tithing, there is gratitude and thanksgiving. And so ultimately, when we talk about church stewardship, We are talking about joy. We are talking about thanksgiving. We are discussing what it means to be a creature living in God's world who God gives everything to as gift. And for a church to engage in stewardship campaigns and to talk about faithfully giving to God, it means for us to understand the broader picture of all that God does for us in the gifts of creation, for all that God does for us in the gifts of redemption. And this, too, gets ignored in seasons of spiritual decline. Greed and other obligations take over, and the church suffers. And this is what we find in Nehemiah 13, that stewardship is just simply ignored. Now, the third thing that happens in spiritual decline, we see that worship is also disregarded. If you follow in verses 15 through 22, you see that Nehemiah once again witnesses that the Sabbath was being broken. This was the day that was set apart for the nation of Israel all the way from the beginning of the world in which God's great victory over evil and sin and chaos was celebrated. And so there was a memorial set one day a week that was to be observed to enter into that celebration, to rest from work for the purpose of worship. One day in seven. Calvin actually argues that this is the most gracious accommodation of God, that he could have demanded all seven, and he only asked for one. And so Nehemiah is incensed by this. Why are the people continuing to trade? Why are they treading in their wine presses? Why are they selling food on the Sabbath? Why are they engaged in trade with the Tyrians? And so he has to confront that, because what gets neglected in all of that commerce there is the true purpose of the Sabbath day. And friends, the purpose for us is that we gather in that gratitude, in that spirit of thanksgiving, that we focus upon the central events of all that God has done for his world and redeeming it through Jesus. That is the Christian Sabbath. And that's why we put aside our other obligations. That's why we lay aside all distractions. That's why we prioritize and say, this is the holy day for us in which we come together to celebrate all that God has done for us. But this is a feature of spiritual decline, is worship becomes of secondary importance. Now the final feature that we see of spiritual decline here is in verses 23 through 27. And there we find that the purity of the church 
is discounted. This is where we once again come upon the issue of intermarriage. And what was happening in Israel is that some who were true believers in the one God were then joining themselves to foreign wives. And this is not a racist statement that is taking place here, but rather it was a religious problem because the women who were being taken in marriage and the men who were being taken in marriage were actually not forsaking their other gods. In fact, we learn in the passage that the children of these marriages were actually not even learning Hebrew, that they weren't speaking the language of Judah. So, of course, they weren't reading the Jewish scriptures. And so children were being raised outside the knowledge of who God was and what he had done for the people and what he intended to do through the people for the world. And Nehemiah confronts the entire situation and says, isn't this just like what Solomon did? That Solomon, despite all the blessings he had from God, despite every kindness that God showed him, despite every mercy, he too took political alliances by marrying foreign women. And he introduced idolatry into Israel. And he may have thought that he was strong enough to withhold against it. But we learn that even Solomon... He collapses. He collapses into idolatry towards the end of his life. And friends, this is the spiritual vulnerability of the church. This is what decline looks like. And the main question for us is how do we handle that vulnerability? When we feel all of that weakness, when we know our capacities, that even in the midst of spiritual renewal and reformation that God visits us with, we have to be very clear that this is possible. That this kind of decline, this declension, this regression, that our sinful capacities will often feed it. And so how do we handle that vulnerability? This morning we read one of my personal favorite psalms. It's one that I frequently pray for you as a body here at Christ Church. But beginning in verse 4, we have a petition, Psalm 85, Restore us again, again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. And this directs us to the path of how we live in this vulnerable space. That The way that we live in that vulnerability is we recognize the dependence that our lives exist in. That we exist in a dependent condition in which we're weak in front of God. And that God blesses us in so many ways and that we are never very far from turning that blessing against him. And so we have to constantly cry out, as we did this morning, by your mercies, O God. By thy mercy, O God. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 85. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And then down to verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. It's the constant prayer of the church. It's not a prayer we say one time and then are done with it. It's the constant prayer and cry of the church that God would show us his steadfast love that he's revealed in Jesus Christ that he renew us day by day and morning by morning, that he extend that grace and mercy and peace that is surely ours in Jesus, that he will never forsake, that he will never withdraw that. 
We know that he will never do those things. And so we cry out to him to be faithful to all that he's done in Jesus on our behalf. Show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. His mercies are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. And that's how the church lives in its vulnerable condition, is entrusting itself to that gracious God who's given that grace in Jesus Christ, who went down into death on our behalf to cancel out the curse that was owed to us in our own sins, in our own vulnerabilities, in our own failures. And then he's risen from the dead, and in him we stand right with God. We then live dependently looking to him, not making other alliances. We listen to him. Where he calls us, we go. Because he is the good shepherd, and he only leads leads us to green pasture. He takes you to quiet water, and so when he commands us, we can trust him. That's the way that the church lives in all of its vulnerability and weakness. Let's be those people, accepting that vulnerability, but yet even more so, looking to God for the grace that holds us. Let's pray. Father, it is a moment in reading this chapter that we could grow proud, that we could look at the hard-headedness of the people and ask why did they decline. And yet we know ourselves. We know our own faults. We know our failures. We know our past. And we're reminded that we share in this vulnerability. And so help us to be people, a church, characterized by dependence, who look humbly to you, And trust in your grace that is ours in Jesus. Have mercy on us, O God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.